talking about. Film's the greatest educational medium the world has ever known. Hi guys, and welcome back to Teenage Golden Age, a podcast where we talk about old Hollywood movies from the perspective of the next generation. Today, we're going to talk about the classic film, Gaslight from 1944, and how it really exemplifies the uses of dramatic irony and how that creates suspense. So to quote vocabulary.com, dramatic irony occurs when the audience knows something that the characters don't. You guys have probably seen millions of films that use this device to generate suspense and even the master of suspense Alfred Hitchcock continually uses dramatic irony in his work to create thriller. Additionally we will explore how this film shows abusive relationships and just how one human being gains power over another through gaslighting. Before we start though please make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because it really helps grow our audience and help more people hear about old movies. Additionally make sure to check out our Instagram and TikTok all under at Teenage Golden Age, where we share movie clips, podcast clips, reminders about when new episodes come out, and more. To summarize Gaslight from 1944, after the death of her famous opera singing aunt, Paula, played by Ingrid Bergman, is sent to study in Italy to become a great opera singer as well. While there, she falls in love with the charming Gregory Anton, and the two return to London, and Paula begins to notice strange going-ons, missing pictures, strange footsteps in the night, and gaslights that dim without being touched. As she fights to retain her sanity, her new husband's intentions come into question. It was a most mysterious case. They never found out who killed her. They never even found a motive. I've tried to get in the house many and many a time. I think it was so exciting, don't you? I mean, just to see. All just as it used to be. Nothing's been changed. All the furniture and everything. Before we begin analyzing the films, let's start talking about the actors, starting with Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman was born in 1915 in Stockholm, Sweden, and her mom sadly died when she was just three years old, so she really grew up with her father. And her acting career began in Sweden in the late 1930s, working in Swedish and German films, and she was recognized by David O. Selznick and went on to doing so many American films, including Casablanca from 1942, Gaslight which of course she won her first Academy Award for, Notorious from 1946, and Anastasia from 1956, which she won her second Academy Award for. And she had a little controversy in her personal life when she began a romantically involved um, relationship with Italian director Roberto Rossellini while she was still married with her first husband. And that scandal kind of made her, her unfavored in Hollywood, but she was able to gain back popularity. So that's really cool. But uh, yeah, she, I feel like she got more hate than she deserved. I feel like so many other men in old Hollywood did the same, but they didn't get as much black backlash. So it's just interesting to see that. But she sadly died at age 67 on her birthday. Next, let's quickly go over Charles Boyer. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correct. He plays Gregory, the gaslighter in the film. 
Charles Boyer was a French-American actor born in 1899, and he began his acting career in the French theater and film industry during the 1920s, and he was soon he soon got the attention of Hollywood producers and did his first American film in The Man from Yesterday from 1932 and went on to doing so many famous films including Gaslight, but also Love Affair from 1939 and Barefoot in the Park from 1967 and he sadly died from a suicide. So to begin just giving an introduction about the film from the start, I definitely had kind of a premonition that the character Gregory Anton, played by Charles Boyer, was the antagonist of the film and had something to do with the murder of Paula's aunts. And I think the main factor that really draws us into this conclusion is from Charles Boyer's acting and just the cinematography and sound of the film. I will talk about that a little later though, but even though we are never told he is suspicious in the story and visually we haven't seen or haven't been told anything that Paula and the other characters haven't seen or been told, there are so many details and clues that enable us to know something that the others, other characters don't and that is where the dramatic irony goes in and um, I feel like the dramatic irony really helps uh, us as the audience know that Charles Boyer is the antagonist, is the person who killed Paula's aunt, but the other characters don't. So I'm really excited to be talking about that. Also, this film explores abusive relationships, of course, and just how one human being gains power over another through gaslighting. And it's just really cool to see how this film coined the term gaslighting and we use that word constantly today so it's just so interesting to see how this film really defined that word anyways let's get into how the acting narrative cinematography and sound creates this dramatic irony and how this dramatic irony creates suspense we are first introduced to Paula when we see her step out of her aunt's house in London with her all-black morning outfit, looking back to what she once had, you know, her house with her aunt and her simple life before the murder. And the dark shadowing in the first introduction gives this cold atmosphere and Paula looks back two times to her house, illustrating her yearn to reverse everything that happened that night and how she misses her old life and she's still processing her aunt's death and is really in denial of it. So her looking back is a way for her to be certain that it all happened. And we see her trauma and hurt as the camera zooms in on her face and we really know little from what happened before the murder and who committed it. So this is a great way that the story sets up these big questions that we are asking throughout the film about who committed this murder. And so we first meet Gregory, Paula's future husband, when we see, when we are brought to Italy, where Paula is singing opera and Gregory is the pianist, and they start this romance. And we first begin gaining suspicion when they are in Lake Como and he says that he wants to live in a quiet square in London. Sounds a little too specific to the house she used to live in, right? Also, when he brings up this dream house, we are hearing this reoccurring music that is very mysterious and dark-toned, which definitely assures us that this moment isn't good. This same score is played over and over again as the film goes on and it's really a signifier to when something spooky and bad is happening. And this sound of course is non-diegetic meaning that the characters aren't hearing it. So this also kind of gives us this these clues that the other character that Paula wouldn't know uh, because she can't hear the sound. This clue that 
whatever he's saying isn't good isn't positive throughout the film i sense the music also getting louder and louder and more intense signifying how paula's life is getting worse and worse as gregory gaslights her and just rules over her and when paula starts to talk about her family in the house where the murder happened gregory looks out into the distance with his eyes kind of watery and we see him thinking in his own world and he looks like he almost knows the story he's very familiar with it and so yeah, that's also another thing that kind of threw me off. They decide to move to Paula's house, and it's just a full circle moment when we see her walk through the same door that she did 10 years ago where she walked out of. All the furniture and objects are still where they were last on the night of the murder, and when Paula drapes down the curtain of her aunt's portrait, we see a close-up shot of Gregory as he inspects this painting. His eyebrows raise, his mouth opens, and his eyes widen, which gives us a sense that he is very sensitive to this image, this portrait of Paula's aunt. And we still don't know for certain his relationship with her, but we have a feeling that he was involved with her in the past in some sort of way and question why he has returned into the family's life and there's just a lot of close-ups of Gregory's face and that only the camera and the audience is seeing and not Paula and this is how the film was really able to create this dramatic irony not traditionally because we're getting an inside scoop of his inner emotions through his facial expressions even though we haven't seen him actually committing the murder like I think Paula we're really getting this inside scoop by really closely seeing his face and in his expressions while Paula is kind of doing other things and she is not solely looking at his face he her her visions aren't like um what's the word isolating his face and really taking time to see what he's thinking from underneath and so that's kind of a way we're able to get another uh get more information than what Paula is getting Paula kind of retells how the murder took place and how she found the body under the fireplace. And when she says she's been, she had been strangled, there was another close-up of Gregory's face. And this close-up on his face, as those words are spoken, creates this parallelism, parallelism with him and the murder. It kind of connects us with his image to the murder and the fact that she had been strangled. So I thought that was really interesting. It was there that I found her, there in front of the fire, under her own portrait. I was in bed and something woke me, I've never known what. I came running down the stairs, frightened as if I knew what had happened. She had been strangled. While looking around, Paula finds a letter written to her aunt, and as she starts reading the, this letter, Gregory's hands crash into the piano and yells firmly, give it to me, and snatches it out of her hand. And this is really the marking point when our suspicions are verified, and not just because of his expressions, but really by his actions. And Paula really doesn't think of how strange it is that Gregory cared so much to like scream at her about this letter because she's just so engulfed in the trauma of the murder as she is seeing this house for the first time uh, after she left it and so she doesn't really pay much attention to that moment and kind of brushes it off but as their lives go on we begin to see that Gregory in general is just not a good person and not a good husband overall because he starts to flirt with Nancy their maid in front of Paula and gaslights her and Paula into thinking that she's weird for being a jealous and for not liking Nancy. 
I hope you're not starting to imagine things again. You're not, are you, Paula? Of course I'm not. I hope you're not, but if you start talking about the way Nancy looks at you... There is obvious dramatic irony when we get an insight to what the maids are talking about, how Gregory said to them that there is something wrong with Paula and how she's ill when she's obviously not, and that really allows him to gain power and dominance over Paula and characterize her as this weak person to society and trick people into thinking that she has these issues. And the gaslighting continues, of course, and this increases our suspicions, obviously. Also, another time that he starts to gaslight is when he gives Paula this brooch that was passed down and tells her not to lose it because she apparently is forgetful and always loses stuff. And they go out, by the way, um, and they never go out. She, He always wants them to stay at home, but it's so cool. They go to the Tower of London, and it's just so cool to see the Tower of London of that of just in that time period and see how it looks exactly the same. I recently visited it. So it's just cool how it's exactly how it looks today. That's just really neat to me. Anyways, also while they are at the Tower of London, we meet the third main character, Brian, who also begins being suspicious of their relationship. And we'll talk about him slightly later, but... Continuing on, anyways, in the middle of their tour, she starts searching through her bag and she can't seem to find this brooch and she dumps her bag out and the camera pans to Gregory's face, looking down and not being shocked and surprised, almost as if he knew it was lost. And this is the beginning of Paula being beginning to believe Gregory's words and premonitions that she is sick and she can't think. And that night is when she first is seeing these gas, the gas go down, which we can see that she isn't hallucinating and the light did go down. And Paula begins to get scared of Gregory and frightened to go against Gregory, Gregory's wishes and asks. And when he tells her that she is mentally ill, she just stiffens and is shocked and scared at her own self. And when Gregory is nice to her and tells her that they are going outside, she is really free-flowing again and smiles and laughs and dances her way around the living room. And that just shows that Gregory really influences her mood and the way she feels about herself as a result of Gregory's gaslighting and makes her think that she is the instigator to their problems and not him. So instead of thinking about how toxic he is, she sees the fault in her personality and is just really oblivious to all of Gregory's red flags and can't see the fault in him. And I think this is what creates the dramatic irony. Only the audience can think clearly, letting Gregory's gaslighting personality and suspicions be obvious to us and show how toxic he is. And that's why she is kind of, she doesn't know that he is bad when, so that just shows that there is dramatic irony in this film because, um, she has no idea that he's bad, but we do. And towards the middle to end of the film, we begin seeing a lot of close-up shots of, sorry, close-up hot, close-up low shots of Gregory to illustrate the power he holds in their relationship over Paula. And there are a ton of high shots of Paula as if we are looking down on her and these shots show her weakness and her lack of power over what Gregory does. And Gregory starts gaslighting and yelling at Paula over everything. Just like the fact that a picture frame was missing, like 
who really cares about that picture frame? Like, I feel like a normal person would not have cared so much. Like, he starts yelling at her and blaming her. It's really horrible. And just the fact that she always hears footsteps and the gas dimming when he's at work. And he just always denies everything that Paula feels and hears. He doesn't even uh, first be... He's not even sympathetic to her. He just automatically thinks that she is lying. And Paula really starts just questioning herself overall and kind of is going through this placebo effect where she's told she's insane, so she begins acting like she is. But I'm telling you now, I'm frightened of the house. I hear noises and footsteps. I imagine things that the people over the house. I'm frightened of myself too. Gregory, please. Please don't leave me. Stay with me. Gregory, take me in your arms, please. Please, please, take me in your arms, Gregory, please, please. The person who really takes her out of this mental state is Brian. Brian met Paula's aunt actually when he was young, and he thought he was just she was just the most beautiful woman. So when he saw Paula at the London Tower, he wondered who she was, and she thought he thought that she was related somehow to the aunt that he had previously met. And so when Gregory is gone, Brian finally sneaks into the house. He's been suspicious for a while and he kind of keeps an eye on the couple and, you know, keeps on gaining the suspicion. So he finally begins by, he finally sneaks into the house and also sees the lights dimming and hears these footsteps that Paul has been hearing. And it's actually interesting because before the maids also deny hearing anything. So this uh, kind of aff affirmation affirmation that from Brian that her thoughts are not imaginary and are actually real make her come back to life and he really helps her through all the things that Gregory has done and really rationalizes it for her and he says you know you're not he you're not going out of your mind you're systematically going out your out of your mind and he's really the one to break this dramatic irony throughout the film and expose her to who her husband actually is and we already know this but we already know he's bad but Brian also helps us confirm that there is actually something suspicious with Gregory and it's just not us thinking that there is going out of your mind you're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind why why Lastly, let's talk about the mise-en-scene because I think it's super important in the film and just the time period the film was set in. I feel like I haven't mentioned this yet in the episode, but the film is, of course, set in the 19th century given the plot is kind of centered around gas lights, which, you know, by the 20th century, they had actual lights. So we were really brought back into the 19th century just by uh, all the little details, the gas lights, the clothing, and their uses of wagons and... Uh, I really usually actually, I'm not such a big fan of period pieces because I find it difficult for teenagers to understand. Um, it's already hard to understand what it was like living in the 20th century, let alone going all the way back to the 19th century because uh, the 19th century, I think the way they talked was extremely different. So even understanding period piece films from the 20th century is difficult. Also, just the mannerisms back then and just their traditional ways of thinking about things is just really difficult to digest, especially as a teenager. I feel like a lot of uh, period pieces from the golden age of Hollywood also deal with the time of slavery or 
during before the uh, civil uh, the Civil War. So it's definitely hard to watch those things. And for that reason, I'm not such a big fan of period pieces. But this film definitely is not overpowering with just all the details of the 19th century. And I feel like it doesn't take I feel like it is a part of the storyline, the fact that it was set in the 19th century, but it definitely isn't. I feel like the story is still easy to understand. They use normal, uh, they speak normally, whereas a lot of period pieces, they speak in this very old English way. And it's just way easier to understand and less overpowering. And so, yeah, that's why I think uh, the 19th century part of the aspect of it isn't that important to the story. Also, another kind of side note, which isn't really important, but Victorian era fashion isn't my favorite. But... I love Ingrid Bergman's garments in this film. My favorite look. I have to explain this because it's just beautiful. She wears this evening gown and it is this white corseted dress with drapings and pearls stringed across it. And it is embellished with diamond brooches and accessorized with this choker and white gloves. And I think it's just so, so beautiful. The, the garments in this film are absolutely amazing. So I think it's definitely a great fashion film for fashion also i thought it was interesting the importance of the setting of the film and how how almost uh gregory's and paula's house is almost a character in the film i was reading this from a book called film noir it's literally just called film noir but it says it talks about the setting of the film and it says as of caged in the residence, both the mistress and storyline rarely venture beyond its walls. Colors, masterful decorations of the room intensify the plot with the number of Victorian knickknacks seeming to multiply as Ma Paula becomes more and more oppressed by her memories. I just thought that was really interesting and I hadn't thought about it and the significance of the fact that they are kind of locked away in this house and how that kind of creates more of the suspense and thriller in the film and more intensity to it. If I were not mad, I could have helped you. Whatever you had done, I could have pitied and protected you. But because I am mad, I hate you. Because I am mad, I have betrayed you. And because I am mad, I'm rejoicing in my heart without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret, watching you go with glory in my heart. Thank you guys so much for sticking to the end of this episode. You guys should definitely go watch Gaslight on really any streaming platform. And actually, when I first watched Gaslight, I was really preparing it to be one of those classics that are just over-talked about, and they're not actually so good, but they're just so overhyped. But it's definitely one of my favorite films and favorite noir films, and it's it's such an incredible example of how to create suspense and thriller in a film. So definitely go take it a give it a try. Make sure though to follow our Instagram and TikTok. And if you guys have any questions or comments about the podcast, feel free to email us at teenagegoldenage at gmail.com. That's teenagegoldenage at gmail.com. See you in our next episode. Bye.